This program, of course, is presented by Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the most widely read, widely sold, and respected wrestling magazine in the world today. This is Pro Wrestling Illustrated Podcast. I'm your host, PWI senior writer, Al Castle, back again with my co-host, fellow senior writer, Dan Murphy. How are you, Dan? I'm doing well. I just finished up all the bios on the uh, Women's 100 and just sitting down with a a nice cold IPA to do the PWI podcast. Excellent. And uh, we've got a third senior writer uh, this time, back for the first time in a long time, fellow senior writer, Harry Birkin. How are you, Harry? Um, I'm doing very well, and uh, great to be back on again. And I like the fact that Dan does uh, podcasts on during his breaks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's his time off of work. Um, and <laughs> we've got the the three of us here because we've got a fun topic uh, to discuss uh, on this podcast. It's going to be all about world titles and uh, pro wrestling illustrated. Uh, how it's recognized and hasn't recognized some world titles uh, over the years. We're going to talk a bit about uh, the history of world title recognition inside the pages of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. And uh, it's timely because uh, we've got some some important decisions to make going forward. And, and we'll talk a bit about that over the 40 years that PWI has been around and, and all the hundreds of if not thousands of, of championships that have been out there. Every promotion seems to have what they call a world title, but uh, actually uh, in our 40 years, it's relatively few championships that PWI has recognized as world titles, and that might be changing uh, going forward. No decision is made, has been made officially as of yet that I know, uh, but we're going to be talking a bit about some of the things that are up in the air and, and things that we are considering. Um, and then later on, while we're on the topic of champions, we're going to be uh, joined by one. We'll have my conversation with the Ring of Honor, Women of Honor champion, uh, Kelly Klein. I got to talk to her a few weeks ago. We'll hear from that. She's got a big uh, title defense coming up at uh, Ring of Honor's next pay-per-view, Death Before Dishonor, where she will be taking on uh, Angelina Love. So uh, we had a fun chat some weeks back. I think she was on a beach somewhere. Um, and we talked about all kinds of stuff, including uh, her winning the title in MSG uh, over WrestleMania weekend, the notion of, of maybe women taking on men uh, more frequently in wrestling and what she thinks about that. And um, she also airs out some grievances she's had with some independent promoters. So a fun uh, chat. You'll want to check it out. Uh, right now, let me tell you about the latest issue of Pro Wrestling Illustrated. It is probably the biggest issue that we, we do all year, the PWI 500. By now, word is out. Dan and I talked about it on the last podcast, and we were uh, joined there by this year's number one ranked wrestler, uh, Seth Rollins. Uh, Harry, uh, again, Dan and I have talked about it. Uh, maybe we'll ask you a bit about it. What, what's been some of the feedback you've heard about this year's PWI 500, and, and maybe what are your thoughts on what we put together this year? I think I've been getting a lot of like begrudging respect for the choice. Um, I still think Seth Rollins has some flaws as a main event star, but I think if you really analyze the top 10, there, there was no other choice. And I think once you go through our process and the evaluation period, a lot of people were pro Kofi Kingston for number one. Well, maybe if we judged it by just the last six months, maybe he would have been. Um, but 10, 
generally, I think there's consensus that Rollins was uh, the, should have been the number one choice. Yeah, I think there should be consensus. I've actually heard more naysayers, and and obviously that's not new with PWI 500. But I mean, I've I've heard people argue with the straight face that you know Seth had no business even being in the top ten, much less number one. And again, I I uh, certainly invite and welcome uh, different points of view. Uh, but to me, that's delusional. I mean, just just look at the guy's year. Uh, to me, he was the, the, the clear choice. Uh, uh, Dan, have you heard you know some naysayers, too, on this? I haven't heard a lot of naysayers, no. Uh, most of what I've seen and heard has really been uh, in favor of Seth, really. Um, like you said, I think that his, his accomplishments stand out. Um, there's no one who could really touch him uh, based on the criteria we have. I have heard some people criticize the, the criteria. You know, I've had some people... You know, say that Will Ospreay should be number one, which I find just absolutely ludicrous because I didn't even think he should be in the top ten personally. But I understand that the reasons why we included him. But you know, again, for for me, the idea of you know somebody like Will Ospreay being number one when he's not even the top guy in his own company, let alone the world, and not even that the top guy, but not in the main event, secondary main event, he holds a, a minor title in a, a second-rate company. Um, Ooh. Uh, that that yeah. might come into play in our uh, discussion later on today. <laughs> well, it's it's it, in my opinion, in my opinion. But uh, yeah, uh, for what mostly from what I've heard, uh, you know, everyone I've talked to or, or read, Seth Rollins seems to be kind of the grudging favorite, like Harry said. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you want to uh, check out the full list and maybe come up with your own opinion, what you want to do is go to pwi-online.com. You can uh, order the one issue, either the print edition or download. Download the digital edition right away to your uh, device. Uh, again, by now, I imagine a lot of you have at least, you know, heard who's number one, maybe seen the top ten, maybe even found the whole uh, 500 list just in terms of, like, bullet points online somewhere. But that is not the way to take in the PWI 500. It really is something that um, you need to sit down with uh, and and digest over Honestly, I mean, it's not even an exaggeration to say days. It's the kind of thing that I'll go back to um, a year later, several years later. I mean, for it's actually, kind of, I guess, part of our job to do that when we're putting together um, the 500 every year. But but they really hold up really well, and they're a lot of fun to read. And um, do yourself a favor. Go ahead and buy it. Um, don't miss out. Uh, if you go to pwi-online.com, you can subscribe and make sure you've got next year's PWI 500 as well as all the uh, other issues we do throughout the year. As Dan mentioned, just finished up working on the Women's 100, which is kind of the counterpart to the 500. Before you know it, we're going to be doing our uh, awards issue. Uh, so much more. You don't want to miss it. Go to pwi-online.com and uh, get yours. Uh, what else do I want to plug? Uh, our social media, at official PWI uh, on Twitter. Buy the uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated t-shirt, the official t-shirt, at prowrestlingtees.com. Uh, and um, you could send us an email here at podcast at outlook.com. We've got a bunch of other emails. That'll be the one I'll plug uh, this week. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm excited to talk about uh, this topic. You know, so often we're just kind of talking about current events, but this is kind of talking shop. This is 
our job, right? We're at the magazine. We're we're in the middle of considering some pretty important decisions. Um, so the three of us haven't really had a chance to hash this out. So I'll be interested in, in what each of you think about it. Um, Dan, why don't you talk a bit about some of what's up in the air right now? Well, right now, w, right now, PWI officially only recognizes the the WWE and the Universal title as as World Championships. Um, and throughout its history, and we'll go into this as we go on with the podcast, obviously, uh, PWI has recognized titles as as a, a world title, and that's always held them a little bit higher in, in higher esteem in the wrestling community um, for uh, really. 30 years or so, uh, maybe a little bit more because uh, prior to uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, there was The Wrestler and, and the other family uh, of magazines that we had that, that had the same designations. Um, but this was really a big deal. Uh, it, it really separated a world title designation from PWI meant that you were at a different level. It wasn't just a little territory. Uh, at one point, I remember in 86, 85, 86, uh, the UWF was really pushing for world title recognition. And, and there was a case to be made, and, and PWI opted against it. ECW in the late 90s was really pushing for it, and eventually PWI granted it. Uh, on the other end, uh, so when PWI takes away world title recognition, as it did with TNA a few years ago, uh, it actually provoked a, a big kind of backlash, or at least conversation online about whether it was right or wrong to do so. Uh, in each of those cases, I think that we made the right choice. Uh, refusing the world title recognition for the UWF, eventually giving it to ECW and rescinding it from Impact. But what's been really interesting is that in the wrestling world, PWI is the only kind of ruling body, for lack of a better term, that's not affiliated with any one promotion. Uh, we are an independent magazine, independent media, that holds a, a criteria that's held up over a period of time and has, has really been the arbiter of this. Um, and, and it still is today. So the point is now we are considering AEW, which now is on national television or is set to debut on national TV. Um, they have a world champion, and we are looking to see whether or not that should receive world title designation. And while we're looking outside of WWE for the first time in a few years now, we're now kind of reconsidering what about Impact? What about Ring of Honor? What about New Japan and the IWGP title? And we're really kind of opening things up and taking a look at what should be a world title and uh, what we should do with the world title designation going forward. Yeah. Let's talk about AEW uh, a little more. Uh, you know, we exchanged some emails on this. And, Dan, I think you raised the question, which Stu answered in the affirmative. Uh, is this the first time that we've considered giving world title status to a championship before it's even been defended one time? Um, so, Chris Jericho just won the, the, the first ever title uh, at uh, All Out, beating uh, Adam Page, but is yet to defend it even once. By the time um, I think our next issue comes out, I imagine it'll probably be defended once or twice. They'll be on TV. I know they've got another show coming up. Um, I guess that'll be in November, so, so that's still a, a ways away. But I think part of it just feels inevitable, right? I mean, the resources are there. The stars are there. Uh, the TV clearance is there. It's got all the makings of a real major wrestling uh, promotion. So it, it's sort of like, well, do we want to wait? If we wait, what's the point? What are we doing it for? Uh, Harry, where do you kind of land on this question? Um, it, it is sort of a unique proposition, but I think you're right. Uh, 
the long-term contracts have been signed. They have the TV clearance. They definitely have the financial backing. And most importantly, which is unprecedented, they have momentum coming out of the gate. It's not a typical startup where, you know, uh, you're waiting one or two years for it to gain traction. Uh, this thing's bursting out of the gate already. So why not recognize it right from the beginning? How much of um, what, what it takes to consider a title a world title has to do with that that word, world. I mean, do you think part of it is kind of inherent um, that a championship uh, to be a world title should be defended at least outside the United States, Dan? No, I, I don't. I, I think that that's really kind of a holdover. Uh, a world champion is going back to the early days, you know, from, from Hackenschmidt and Dodge and up into the 40s and the 50s, um, with the NWA, the NWA, it was basically mimicking boxing. You had your world champion and you had your world champion in the NWA. Um, that split in the, the 60s, once you had the AWA breaking off and you had the WWWF splitting off from the NWA, uh, for the longest time, the WWWF didn't even really call their world title uh, a world title. Uh, our magazine referred to it as a world title because it recognized it at that same level as the AWA and NWA titles. But Vince McMahon, uh, senior and junior, would typically refer to the WWF and WWF title as the WWF title, not the world title or the heavyweight title. Um, it wasn't until later that it really kind of got into the, the world title uh, conversation. Um, but the thing is, I don't think it's that it's defended around the world. I don't think it's even that it's defended outside of the company like uh, Ric Flair did um, in the early days with Jim Crockett Promotions and in, in, in the NWA, where he would go from region to region and territory to territory to defend the title. Obviously, that model doesn't exist anymore, really. Um, you know, it, it's not going to happen in AEW, most likely. A, a company has a title, it's a company title, and that's how it is. But the world designation essentially meant that it was major league, it was big league, big time. It was uh, presented as the most important title in that area, and that area was big enough where it was considered a major area. Uh, so I don't think it needs to be defended outside of uh, the United States or Canada or anything like that to be considered a world title at this point. I think it just needs to be um, very prominent nationally and be on national television to be a world championship. Yeah. I, I do think we have to be careful with this, though, right, because – you know, it's been uh, four years now, uh, maybe a little more than that, since we last recognized any non-WWE title as a world title, and that was Impact, uh, which I think had world title status for something like eight years, starting from when um, they brought back the NWA championship, and we didn't recognize it right away. I think it was 2006 or 2007 before uh, Impact, I think, in, in our eyes, did enough to, to warrant um, world title designation, and I think uh, at the time it was the right call. I think they they were a major player. They had a major stars. Uh, they they had real TV. They were running shows and uh, getting some attendance. Uh, so I I think that was the right call. But I also think at the time there was a little bit of kind of a, a hangover from WCW, and there was this uh, eagerness to for there to be another wrestling company that wasn't WWE, you know, some real competition. And I, I can't help but wonder if some of that is happening now where 
were so kind of uh, excited about some real competition and and the return of, of you know, the Wednesday night war or, or whatever uh, you want to call it, um, you know, there, there's at least uh, the, the, the potential that a year from now, AEW doesn't exist. I, I don't expect that'll happen, but it's a possibility, right? Uh, and then how does this decision hold up then? So, uh, Harry, can you talk a bit about that? I mean, maybe some of the... Uh, the landmines uh, ahead if if we move too fast on this decision? Well, I think probably the best, best example of that uh, would be the ECW championship being yes. bumped up to world title status back in 1999. I think I remember writing that story um, because ECW was in a situation where it was really past its prime in terms of creativity and impact and draw and the national expansion had stalled um, and it was near bankruptcy and Paul Heyman was bouncing checks but then at last minute this last minute save uh, TNN cuts this deal with them for a three year contract and uh, I remember in the story where we justified finally giving ECW world title status there was a number of factors one was that it had remained in business for seven years at that point, um, the quality of its matches, um, the quality of its pay-per-views at the time, and the fact that it, ECW was always mentioned in the same breath as WCW and the WF, as being on the same level in terms of you know, coverage of magazine and the fact that WWF and WCW were rating talent and ideas from ECW. So this was, that was a situation where we really wanted to give it world title status, but we just needed that nudge and that TNN, TNN kind of the nudge that we were waiting for for so long. So, yeah, that that is a landmine. But I also think that titles can move in and out of world title status. And if a promotion starts to fail, well, like uh, Impact Wrestling did, um, that's not our fault. You know, we made the best decision we could at the time. You know, it's not really our fault that they hit hard times. So we can't beat ourselves up too much after the fact. Right. Well, that being and, said, along those lines, real quickly, the, the only title, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Harry, but the only title that we ever had as a world title, stripped of world title designation, and then we recognized as a world title was the WWF title, right? Well, right, and that goes back to 1983, and that's when... I think I was between 11 and 13 years old, so I had nothing better to do than follow this whole thing month to month. <laughs> and I do recall that whole issue in 83, it wasn't so much to promote the NWA and AWA titles by referring to them literally as NWA world title, WWA world title, but it was a way to demote the WWF title. And you have to remember, uh, mid-1983, this is when Vince McMahon was really pushing for the national expansion, but it hadn't happened yet. Um, they were kind of at war with the PWI family of magazines. Um, but it hadn't gone cartoonish yet. It hadn't gobbled up all of the syndication in the country quite yet. And uh, I recall uh, PWI's argument at the time, which was uh, Bob Backlund doesn't defend the title outside the Northeast ever. And when he does defend the title outside the Northeast, it's against WWF wrestlers. I remember there was a year in review, Captain, kind of like the ones that you do, Dan, where there was 
a picture of Bagland Pollock driving Samoan Alpha, and the caption was, boy, those Samoans are tough the 25th time around, because the wrestled the same guy over and over, Mr. Saito. And at the same time, Jimmy Snook at Tito Santana, they weren't getting their title shots. And I have to say, being between 11 and 13 years old, someone searching for credibility in wrestling, where you kind of know what the deal is, but you want to believe well, at least like 20% of it's real. Um, the fact that the magazines stand on principle, that Franklin didn't defend the title against scientific wrestlers, that gave the magazine credibility in our eyes. And uh, yeah. I know I totally went along with it. And, boy, yeah, he doesn't defend the title outside of Northeast. <laughs> they really made the case for Flair defending the title in Japan, Bachwinkle defending his title in Japan. Um, and I think that period lasted about two years. Because in that time, the national expansion happened, and I guess we started looking a little ridiculous not re- recognizing the WWF titles. It's nothing more than a regional championship at that time. And um, I believe that all happened on the ratings analysis page, where they're talking about the mail coming in. It was 60% of favor of uh, reinstating the WWF title to a world title. And then the following issue, it was like the November issue, November 85. Yeah, you talk about uh, it giving us credibility when when the reality was I think the opposite, and I think Stu and 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 Bill and some other guys who were the magazine have been upfront about it that the truth is the decision was a political one. It had to do with uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated being banned from uh, taking photographs at WWE events, uh, and and that was the biggest factor. And I think when when that started to soften. They got their uh, world title status back, uh, but I think that the the big picture certainly with what you mentioned uh, about uh, ECW and I'd, I'd even maybe bring up the AWA in in the later years is that some of these don't hold up real well. I mean, I remember when I first started working for the magazine and we'd be putting together the PWI five hundred, and when I would get uh, to to Steve Carino's bio, I was always kind of irked by referring to him as a former world champion because. It just doesn't seem right, but but he was right. So because he he held the EW ECW world title when it had uh, world title status, uh, I'd say in retrospect ECW should never have gotten uh, world title status. That doesn't mean that at the time it wasn't the right decision, but it just it it's a decision that you know looking back with some historical perspective, um, I I think you have a, a different clarity, more clarity than than you did at the time. Um, Maybe you can argue that with with TNA uh, as well. And again, AWA, there, there was some of that too. I mean, the the waning days of the AWA, uh, you know, their their viewership had largely dried up. They were running these uh, smaller shows at at a, a casino. They had kind of a skeleton crew, and uh, yet to this day, you know, Kurt Hennig and uh, Jerry Lawler. Who else? I mean, Zabisco. They're again. They're yeah, held up they're, there as world champions, Mr. Saito, uh, because they they wore the AWA World Championship. Really, kind of passed when it it really uh, meant something. So I I am uh, a little kind of cautious about about making uh, the same mistake here uh, with with AEW. It doesn't feel that way, but but at least it should be uh, out there. Uh, Dan, no, what are some of? I'm sorry again. I think a potential landmine, and this is uh, what happened with ECW also, 
it's holding up a national cable contract as the as the ultimate standard. And I think we've actually come to a situation where we've gone full circle, and maybe we can make the new measuring stick global presence. Yeah. And in the same way that Harley Race defended the NWA title in Japan, he had to defend the title in Japan for it to have a presence in Japan. Uh, Bachwinkle had to defend his title in Japan to have a presence there. But nowadays, you don't have to. You know, Kofi Kingston doesn't have to defend the WWF or WWE title in Tokyo because WWE is consumed in Tokyo. You know, it has a presence there. I guess you really have to look at the company more than anything else. Is, is this a worldwide brand that's being consumed by people worldwide? And maybe that's a, a thing to look at. Well, let's talk about that, and uh, maybe that, you know, brings into question some decisions we've made in the past to exclude some world titles. Um, Ring of Honor comes to mind. Ring of Honor, uh, I, I think it's harder to make an argument now than it has been in recent years, but Ring of Honor very much uh, has been a major player in the last uh, 10 years. You know, th- that title's been defended around the world in, in Japan. I think they're... Uh, relationship in New Japan has given them a lot of exposure. You look at some of the names that have held that title in the last 10 years, you know, Daniel Bryan and, and Samoa Joe and CM Punk, and even more recently, uh, guys like Jay Lethal um, and Cody Rhodes and, and so many others. Um, is did, did we miss the boat there, uh, Dan? Do you think there was a time that, that maybe we should have given them um, world title status, and is it too late to really consider it now? No, I don't think... I, I think we made the right call on that. I don't think we missed the boat. Um, because, I mean, look at where Ring of Honor is now. It's 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 really in the lowest point in the, in the history of the company. Now, it has a Sinclair contract and it's still on TV, but all of the top names have really been pilfered. Uh, as it turns out, Ring of Honor became more influential than ECW. ECW was credited with changing the entire wrestling industry, and it did. It, it ushered in the Attitude Era of WWE, helped WWE win the ratings war, and everything got edgier. And, and there's a five- or six-year span where ECW, you could see its fingerprints everywhere, worldwide. But Ring of Honor has, has had much deeper uh, tendrils that have affected everything. Uh, WWE, 205 Live, NXT, it's, it's really, really... Um, been such a, a really powerful influencer, but it has never been a real huge company. I mean, yes, they, they did do Madison Square Garden with with uh, they co-promoted that with with New Japan, and they had a, the, the relationship with New Japan, and they they've had a few shows here and there. But your typical Ring of Honor show throughout most of the company's history was maybe five or six hundred fans, maybe up to a thousand, a little bit more than that, and. and most of those other world championship companies that we recognize at one point or another, we're drawing 10 times that. Well, uh, close to that. Uh, point is they, they never had the draw or the, the big league feel of what we have traditionally recognized as, as world championship uh, companies and world championship titles. So I, I don't think that we missed the boat on that. I think we did the right thing. And I think the fact that, uh, Ring of Honor seems to be in a definite tailspin right now, kind of bears that out. But as you touched on, I mean, 
Well, well, let me ask you this: Were we wrong to to give ECW world title status at the time? And and you were you were with the magazines when we made that decision, right? Yeah, I was, um, and, and I was I supported it um, because the thing was ECW at that time was was so the I talked about the influence of, of Ring of Honor, and it, it was a slower burn. Um, Daniel Bryan, Bryan Danielson, was was a huge star in Ring of Honor ten years ago. And it took him six or seven years to get to the WWE and then get through NXT and then that slow build and everything else. So, so Ring of Honor affected things, but it was a 10-year a period. Of time. It was a gradual type of influence. ECW changed everything seemingly overnight. ECW had this, this, this uh, appeal where all of a sudden things looked more real and they were bringing in international talent and they were featuring cruiserweights and they were featuring technical matches with Dean Malenko and Eddie Guerrero and others. And obviously the blood and guts and the risque storylines and everything else. And within less than a year, even less than that, it was, um, it was being replicated in WCW and in WWE and, and on well, WWF on Monday nights. So it really felt like ECW was the, the prime mover, and, and they were a real force. And with that national TV deal, it, it definitely seemed like the right thing to do. So I was definitely in favor of it. It just turns out that by the time they got that national TV deal, they were so far in debt and had already lost so many of their top stars with the, the bidding wars that they just couldn't recover. And when TNN never really quite pushed them the way that they were supposed to and never proved to be that kind of uh, golden goose, uh, they were done. So I supported that at the time. I supported not recognizing Ring of Honor at the time. It may seem a little bit hypocritical, but it, it was a different different uh, situation. Yeah. So a name that's already come up uh, a bunch of times in this conversation, New Japan. And, and I think we probably get more heat on our uh, decision not to recognize the IWGP championship as world championship than any other, including uh, a Ring of Honor. Um, New Japan, certainly for the last several years and, and maybe longer longer than that, is the second largest promotion in the world. Um, in, in Japan, certainly, and I think in recent years, uh, even in the United States, very much a major league promotion in, in every sense, in, in um, star power, in what they pay their wrestlers, in the houses they draw, in their uh, production value, uh, uh, TV product. Uh, all of it. They're just not in the United States, and I think that's historically what has uh, hurt them, um, considering that we are an American wrestling magazine. Uh, is it time, Harry, uh, maybe to, to reconsider that? Is it time to give uh, New Japan world title status? I think it is. Uh, I'm prepared to recognize the two WWE championships, AEW and the IWGP title, um, you can definitely point that point to the history of the championship. Now you can't go by that alone; otherwise, we'd have the NWA title, the world title, right now, and I don't think we're ready for that. Um, if you look at that, um, it's presence on Access TV. Um, it has made inroads into the North American market. Maybe they're not running shows here all the time, but you're a typical North American fan is definitely aware of New Japan a instead consider that a worldwide brand. So uh, I'm, I'm ready for that, to be honest. Dan, how about you? I mean, it, 
one of the issues here is that we didn't recognize them for so long, including during periods for them where they were doing much bigger business than they are now. Um, so why not That's then true. and why now? That's exactly it. Yeah, we're, they're, they're in a little bit of a downturn right now, too, um, having lost Kenny Omega and, and uh, obviously – they don't have really, I mean, Tanahashi is towards the end of his career. Uh, Okada is incredible, but he's, he's really running out of challengers other than Jay White. And, you know, they're, they're not at their peak right now, and they were doing better business at a time where we weren't considering the moral title. I would still prefer to sit on it. Um, there's no need to be rash, no need to make a rash decision on this. Um, I mean, what I really feel bad about is that we didn't recognize the uh, All Japan Triple Crown back mm -hmm. during the 90s. I mean, you, you had the matches that were going on there with Mitsuhara Misawa and Kenta Kabashi and, and others, and, and, and what they were doing was so ahead of the game, and it influenced the guys who went on to start doing Ring of Honor, who were just basically stealing Misawa moves and, and things like that and trying to say, you know, hey, I just got the new All Japan tapes. So let's try to do this. Um, again, when you talk about the influence on the sport, all Japan has really kind of dropped off a cliff since then. It's a shame that, I mean, that was a, a company at a time that was the most prestigious championship in the sport. And we missed our window on recognizing that as a, a PWI world title. Um, with new Japan, it, it wouldn't upset me if we did recognize it, but I think that we should wait a little bit longer only because, um, we sat out and didn't recognize it um, three or four years ago or even earlier. Uh, there have been times where the business was really up and now it's kind of dropped down a little bit. I don't know. Um, it, it's, it's a complicated uh, question, but I, I, I still, there are still so many things with new Japan where the champion will only defend the title every three months or so in, in a singles match. It's tag matches. It's everything else. Uh, a successful champion has like three or four title defenses because of the way they structure things. And it's so different than the model that we've looked at. We're a fighting champion in, in most U.S. promotions still harkens back to the NWA rulebook where you have to defend the title once every 30 days. And if you don't, you're stripped of the title. And that was something we looked at historically as part of the the distinction of recognizing a world champion. If, if a major company had a world champion, in fact, it happened with Ron Garvin. When Ron Garvin beat Ric Flair in 87 for the world title, uh, the first thing he did was take a vacation. And we, we kind of crucified him in the magazine about it. He took 45 or 50 days before his match against Ric Flair. And we talked, I, I remember there was a thumbs up, thumbs down. Uh, and I think maybe Eddie Elner, somebody had written a column about Maybe if, if the NWA is going to put up with this kind of behavior, maybe the NWA title shouldn't be a world championship. I mean, that was the, the talk at the time. So, so going from that kind of model historically that we had, and obviously the business is very different today, but you still have this thing with New Japan. Their championship is only defended every, you know, what, six times a year, seven times a year maybe? It, it still it, it doesn't feel like a, a PWI-recognized world championship to me still. Yeah. Uh, how about anybody else? Any other promotions out there uh, that maybe could be considered? Uh, you brought up Impact. You know they've they've dropped off quite a bit, even um, maybe from when we made the decision to strip them of world title status. But they've also built up some, and now with the news of Anthem Sports uh, buying 
Access TV, I think the former HDNet, now uh, at least the possibility, maybe the likelihood that they're going to get back some strong TV, maybe new resources. Uh, so do they get back on the map and maybe earn that back? Uh, I, I think I think we'd all agree that feels a little premature. Uh, NXT is an interesting one because on one hand, they are by definition kind of the minor league of WWE. So how could their title be at the uh, the same level as the the main titles and Raw and SmackDown. By the other hand, they're about to uh, get a weekly TV clearance on on USA, and certainly among a certain group of fans, that title and I'd say maybe uh, among some wrestlers, that title is more prestigious than than any other in WWE. Uh, so, uh, Harry, or, or, or do any uh, of those carry any weight? Is there maybe another promotion that we should at least be thinking about? Uh, maybe not just yet, but I would definitely revisit them down the line. Maybe even the uh, NWA title way down the line. And I, th- I think it's just something you just, just have to monitor um, and be willing to reevaluate the championship at any time. Yeah. Are, are there any uh, other ones over the years that maybe we missed uh, the boat on? Uh, whether you know, uh, Dan brought up uh, uh, all Japan, I don't know Mexico, other other maybe maybe major territories during the territory years. Um, as Dan mentioned, uh, the UWF made a major push going national and uh, wanting world title status, uh, but PWI didn't grant that. Another one would be the World Class Wrestling Association when they split right. from the NWA, and you know they had all these. Uh, call them maybe they're not they weren't crazy they didn't they didn't seem crazy at the time so much that a title could change hands on disqualification which was kind of a knock against rick flair always dumping carry one eric over the top rope um but uh i would say world class and uwf made that push in 86 but both were gone by 89 so i really can't think of any others except maybe all japan which uh Dan mentioned I can't hey, Harry, uh, not, 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 not to put you on the spot, Harry, but there, there's another one that I'm thinking, and I'm, I, I apologize, I'm blanking on myself right now. But uh, in California, um, there was the championship in the with 60s and 70s. Is that, um, is that WWA, maybe? Was that, is that the, that's, that's the one. I think they were think out that, of business before PWI started, No. By 79, yeah. But the Family of Magazines was around at the time. But I think that that might have been another one historically that probably should have gotten the, the recognition. Um, but, yeah, it may have – I mean, what would you think, Harry? Are you familiar with uh, WWA? Well, what's interesting is before 1983 in the magazines, I never recall any of the major championships being referred to as world titles per se. It was, you know, the NWA title was talked about in the AWA and WWF on equal footing, but it wasn't defined as such. And you might have the occasional article about the WWA title, but uh, the West Coast really wasn't totally ignored, but it was uh, considered secondary to the East Coast, just mainly maybe because of where the magazines were located, uh, maybe retroactively. That, that would have made sense. Yeah. Yeah, Here's I don't think we may have been that. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a wacky one that uh, uh, comes to mind. The 
WWE version of the ECW world title. This was, uh, I bring it up because this was a rare instance where WWE had a title that I think they recognized as a world title, and we didn't. And I remember them trying to push Lashley like he was a world title, on, uh, world champion on the same footing as uh, John Cena or, or Batista or Triple H, and uh, we never bought in, and I think that was the right call. And another one that was given a, a surprising amount of credibility at the time, I think this was 1983, Southwest Championship Wrestling had a tournament to, to establish its own world champion, and uh, I believe Adrian Adonis, Terry Funk, Abdul the Butcher, guys like that were in the tournament, and Adrian Adonis won the tournament. And he was not advertised as the Southwest Championship Wrestling champion, world champion, but simply the undisputed world champion. Right. And PWI didn't recognize it as such, but we covered it as a tournament and a serious story. And I remember we had pictures of Adrian Adonis at a press conference, and basically it was a replica of the NWA title belt. Maybe it belonged to Terry Funk, actually, and he had that on the table. But that kind of went away in six months. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of... of uh others over the years anything come to mind dan well here's no, one but that, that one uh I, I couldn't remember the adrian Adonis one that's that's a really neat bit of history i want to do a little bit of research on that that's pretty cool Here, here's yeah, one yeah. The, the nwa championship obviously when we started it was it was the world title it was the closest thing to kind of um an undisputed world title because of the nwa as a sanctioning body um, but over the years, there have been so many versions of the NWA title, including one that exists now. You, you touched on it, uh, Harry. You know, I, it's obviously premature uh, to, to consider it now. But in 1992, I think through about 93 or 94, it was resurrected within WCW. Uh, you might remember, I think they had a tournament and Masachono won it. Uh, Barry Windham held it for a while. I think, I think Flair might have even had that version of the world title. It later right. uh, morphed into, well, they lost, uh, I guess, the rights to NWA, and they still had the belt, so they started, and this was the, the big gold belt as we know it now, uh, they started calling it the WCW International Heavyweight Championship, and I asked you, and yep. I don't know that I got a, a clear answer, but do you remember whether we ever considered that a world title? I don't think we did, right? No. We did. I, that was a no. mess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't even think WCW understood that and, and definitely failed to understand, to like explain the purpose of that to its audience. Yeah, that was confusing as uh, there was, I'll get out. Yeah, if I remember, I think Howard Brody's book, uh, Swimming with Piranhas, I believe, he talked a little bit about that whole situation because he was a little bit involved with the NWA at the time. And I, I, I believe... Uh, it, my memory is a little bit fuzzy, of it, but uh, you know, it was Ted Turner had bought uh, Jim Crockett Promotions, but there were still other NWA members, and just because he bought the largest NWA member, didn't give him the full rights to the name of the NWA World Title, as long as the other members could could fight him on it. Uh, and they went back and forth for a little while, and Ted Turner decided, you know, what's bigger than the national wrestling, other than the World Championship, you know. Why be national when you can be a world championship, you know, and it became WCW, which was the name of the TV show. The NWA TV show was World Championship Wrestling. 
Uh, so they took the name of the TV show and, and kind of retroactively made it the name of the actual company. Um, so the other NWA members recognized Champion. They had the whole thing with Ric Flair leaving and, and trying to bring back the title belt. And it, it was just a mess, but they, they were really trying to find a way to um, restore that lineage, keep that lineage that, that the NWA always talked about going back to Frank Gotch in 1905 and everything else and, and try to connect that with what they had in, in 1992. And it was just such a mess. I, uh, Barry Windham had that title, I think. I think maybe yep. the great Muda might have. Yes. Um, I think Rick Rude might have been the last to have it. I think he was. And he had a match. In fact, I think he was wrestling Sting, defending that title maybe where he suffered his career-ending injury, if I'm not mistaken. Right? Maybe, right. Uh, and the, then they unified him. Yeah. And they kept yeah. that belt, even though they started calling it the WCW Championship, but they kept the old uh, NWA belt, the, the big gold belt. Ten pounds of no, ten pounds of gold is the other one. It's the uh, the NWA title that Nick Aldis has now, right? Um, yeah, but yeah, these I believe when it first came out, we're calling it the fifteen pounds of gold. Oh, and then they got a new scale. They kind of but recalibrated they, they and realized way. they were a couple of pounds off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the 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 names are a lot of fun. I sometimes have this debate with with my kid about he's brought it up. It's like, well, so if. Uh, you know, whoever is the WWE champion, that means he is only recognized in WWE, but the Intercontinental champion can wrestle on any continent and be uh, considered the champion there, but he can't wrestle out in the seas because he will not be recognized out, out in the seas, but the world champion would, and obviously Seth Rollins uh, beats them champion, all because certainly. he's the champion in the entire universe. So what's bigger than that? <laughs> They need the, the intergalactic champion. That would be even more. Well, where, uh, where does Jim Cornette's old uh, tag team, the Galaxians, fit in then? <laughs> so, you know, they, they can only wrestle within one galaxy. <laughs> so let's do kind of a, an informal uh, a poll here that maybe will kind of help in, enlighten this whole thing. And I'm sure Stu would be interested in hearing from us. Uh, uh, in favor of recognizing the AW, AEW championship as a world championship, uh, yay or nay, I'll say yay. Harry? I'll say yay. Dan? I'll be a naysayer. I'll say nay. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to get you to say yay to anything. Again, again, I, look, I do think that it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's almost inevitable, but, uh, and they do have momentum and they have a national TV deal, but again, it's still kind of, it, it doesn't sit right to me to give something a uh, world title recognition when there hasn't been a title defense. Sure. I, I guess mean, the argument could be, what's the premature, rush, right? Right. Yeah. Um, IWGP Championship, uh, yay or nay? Uh, I, again, will say yay. Harry? I'll say yay, but the dance points are well taken. I have to say, I feel like I, the wrestling world lost a little something when we started only recognizing the two WWE championships as world titles. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. Like we almost abandoned uh, our role. And I, I think at that time that maybe the IWGP title should have been recognized as a world title. It's, it's something I don't think we should ever abandon. Yeah, I think it's a good point. And, and Dan, you brought up the point uh, before that we're the, really uh, the only independent body. Uh, and yet for the last four years, I wonder if that's the longest stretch uh, in our history. We've only recognized one company's championships as, as world titles. Uh, but but you on uh, IWGP, uh, Dan? 
uh, again, they, um, uh, it's a great company and they have great matches and they're huge and they're, they're getting bigger and bigger in the U.S., but we missed some of their biggest years and right now it just doesn't feel like the right time. Yeah. And lastly, I'll bring it up, uh, Ring of Honor, I will say nay. Uh, Harry? Well, a few years ago, maybe just two years ago, I would have said yes. But that right now has to be a pay. Yeah. And Dan? In good conscience, I can't. Uh, in good conscience, I can't vote for any company that Matt Taven is her champion. Is world champion. <laughs> <laughs> well, there goes our chances of having Matt on as a guest here. Um, no, and, you know, Matt, but I just just maybe the point I should point out that Stu's favorite quote or one of his favorite quotes, where he said that PWI has always taken pride in being very reluctant to grant world title status. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think if you look at forty years of history, we've mostly gotten it right. You know, I think we can bicker about you know this decision here and this decision there. Were we too late in giving one title world title status? Were we premature in in stripping it of another? Uh, but by and large, I think our decisions um, hold up pretty well. Uh, so let me let me just say one other thing on this. It, it, you look at the times that we did not recognize the title, and at the time it seemed like maybe we should have, and I think that history has shown that we are right not to. And, and two that are very obvious to me, um, WSX, if you remember, Wrestling sure. Society X. Which was the next big thing. On, yeah. But it, was, it debuted on MTV. It had yeah. MTV behind it, and it was a big deal for a, a short period of time in Southern California. It was new. It was edgy. It had national TV. It had a buzz about it. Uh, we resisted it, and, you know, it, it had burnt out. And then the other one, Lucha Underground, yes. same thing, another West Coast thing. And Lucha Underground really caught a buzz. I mean, on, on the El Rey Network, that was really influencing the, the business. It influenced a lot of companies to begin to do the backstage vignettes differently, to use a little bit more of kind of that. Uh, I think that that probably helped really um, pave the way for the, the Matt Hardy, broken Matt, you know, vignettes and everything. Um, that were a little less sports entertainment and more movie, more, you know, cinematography. Um, but we waited and we waited it out and the company fell apart. Yeah. And I think that that's happened a few times before and I don't want to bite too early on these things like AEW. I want to see them get a few years under their belt and say, okay, this is a real company that's going to be around for the long haul. Um, you know, there's no need to, we, there's only been a handful of companies that we've given world title designation to. There's no sense in watering it down without a company proving themselves first. Yeah. Another one that comes to mind because it's going to be here in my neck of the woods at, at uh, the theater of Madison Square, Madison Square Garden this Sunday, AAA, and for that matter, CML uh, as well. Um, I don't know that we'd seriously consider it now, but was there ever a time, do you think, that they could have made an argument? I, I don't think so. I, I don't think that there is. Well, you know, no, there were, there might have been. Um, AAA with the When Worlds Collide pay-per-view, and I believe that might have been right around the same time as the Conan Jake Roberts feud. Mm -hmm. um, they were drawing huge houses then. I know that there's been a lot of time where Lucha has really kind of gotten into California, and, and it's really been very popular in Little Pockets. Um, but it's never made it into, you know, mainstream uh, America. I mean, 
Well, that being said, I've been to little venues in Illinois that are advertising, you know, next week there's a Lucha show. Um, so it's got a popularity, it's got a cult popularity, but it's never been uh, widespread popularity where it can attract a full house nationwide in the U.S., I don't think. So um, I'm, I'm kind of happy that we never did look at AAA or CMLL or, you know, any other of those companies as a world title. Yeah. Agreed. All right, guys. This was a lot of fun. Um, I appreciate you uh, both weighing in here. Harry, you in particular, for joining us. Always good uh, having you on. Uh, and Dan, always. as always. Hey, happy to be here. Yes. Yeah, great and, to be here. Yes, absolutely. We're going to get you back on before uh, too long. Uh, right now, let's hear from uh, another champion. There's a whole other discussion about whether women should be considered world champions uh, or not. Maybe that's uh, the next episode of the PWA podcast. Uh, but for now, let's hear from the Ring of Honor, Women of Honor champion, Kelly Klein. Great. Thanks so much for uh, agreeing to do this. Sorry to interrupt your, your nice beach vacation. You're having a better time than I have. Can I ask where you are? We are in Miami. Sweet. What's the uh, temperature? Um, it's a high of 88 today, I think. Oh, it's like the same we have here in New York, so. Yeah, Talk it's actually warm. Um, hold on a second. So, yeah, it's, I was looking at the temperature, and it's warm, and it's humid down here, but, I mean, there were some days, like, we were in Tampa, and I was looking, I was like, it's, it's hotter in Cincinnati. Yeah. By a few degrees. <laughs> yeah, the thing is, it's always like that in Florida. So if you're down there like Christmas time, it's probably in the 80s too. Yeah, I'm right. not a fan of Florida. Yeah, we get, yeah, I mean, we definitely get much more drastic shifts yeah. in Cincinnati. But. <laughs> well, thanks for, for uh, talking. I won't uh, keep you too long. And obviously a few months ago, you were uh, in New York for a very big show, a, a venue a little bit bigger than the Hammerstein Ballroom, just across the street. Uh, can I ask you a bit about that? I mean, what was that like for you, uh, working in Madison Square Garden? I was there for the show. It was a terrific show. Um, and, and I know for uh, for folks who don't work for WWE, I mean, that seemed like a, a pipe dream that could never happen. And here was a different company, two other companies, um, working in Madison Square Garden. What was that like for you? It was really exciting because it was something that prior to – the year before that and before it was announced didn't necessarily seem uh, something that was as likely to be something that I would be involved in. So for me, it was just a lot of um, a lot of the right pieces fell into place. So many variables involved. Um, it even you know leading up to that and that immediate time frame around there that led to my opportunity to to be in that position. So that was really cool and. I mean, that, that all kinds of things, just, you know, me being able to be involved in Women of Honor with the relaunch and the timing of all of that, uh, you know, for me to be part of that company when this happened, um, that, that was really cool. And it was also uh, meant a lot to me that I was entrusted with that position and that responsibility. Um, and then, you know, I was able to have my, my mom and dad and my brother came out, so they were there live as well. Um, and that they don't get to catch a whole lot of live events. So for that to, to work out was um, really great, you know, for to really be able to have them be able to be present and participate and, and one of those moments that you know, kind of shows 
what all the years and years of yeah. work are for. Yeah. Is it um, with a high that's so high, what's the come down when you go backstage and when you go back to working, you know, regular shows and uh, in front of, you know, smaller crowds than you'd have Madison Square Garden? Is that a big come down? Not for me. And I don't know. Uh, kind of questions sort of similar to that a lot or in the vein of, um, you know, like how, how it feels in, in front of different size audiences. And for me, I, I, I'm aware of it. Um, and, and I'm you know, cognitively aware of all the reasons why it's really great that we've, you know, got this event and this opportunity and that there are that many people that wanted to come out and, you know, to be able to be involved in that. But, uh, I, I don't tend to, to approach them or even think of them very differently than, than a lot of other events. And I think just for me, um, maybe just because I, I'm always focusing on competing with myself and my last performance, no matter where it was or, or who was in front of or how many people. So it's every single time to me, um, kind of is at almost the highest stakes that it can be. Um, I mean, it's you know there's always different situations that can can create um you know something maybe being more significant than something else but to me i'm always trying to think of like how can i how can i do the best for for all these people and and no matter how many people are out there every single one of them paid for their ticket so um you know just because there are fewer people doesn't mean that each of those people didn't sacrifice their time and money and energy to make the choice to be there Right, right. And uh, as you touched on, I mean, you've kind of been at, at the uh, precipice of uh, the new women's division in, in Ring of Honor. And uh, women's wrestling has, has grown a lot in the last few years. Certainly WWE has you know raised the profile of their women's division a lot. They headlined WrestleMania earlier this year. But with Ring of Honor, it, it, it still feels kind of new, still feels like it's kind of in that, that uh, beta phase. Um do do you feel that, and what kind of pressure is that for you to get this thing up and running in Ring of Honor? I do feel that a little bit, and part of that is, you know, you. I think of it as, in a way, like if if you're thinking of um, somebody starting like a, a new business or a small business, it's it's a little bit like that in, in a way because there are all these um, these things that we have to grow on and build on, and one thing that I think people um, sometimes forget and I'm glad they're excited and they want to see more women of honor, but you also have to take into consideration. There's only so many events and so many minutes available and there's already an existing roster, whether they're men or women or not, there is an existing roster. So to get more minutes of one thing, you have to take away minutes from another thing. And um, so that's something where just as an entire company, um, everybody has to work together and there have to be all of these different variables and pieces that fall into place to where we can um, get more time and more exposure for the women and more of a platform there. So uh, over the past four years, we've really, uh, a lot of us have been working together to, to figure out ways to do that and to be able to bring the content to people in different ways and um, try to grow and build it organically. And, you know, when there are times for me when I look and I think I wish that we, you know, were further ahead, but then I look back and I remember 
when I first started, we were um, we were not getting representation on every single show. Um, we were, you know, and, and not let alone like TV or pay-per-views. We were just we were lucky to get a pre-show match on occasion, and that's that's just how it was. You know, it was like slowly um, kind of adding us in in places and. You know, so now when I look back at that, then I, I realize, well, we really have come a very, very long way. And that's encouraging because that's, you know, that just means like, okay, we can, we can do more and we can keep, keep moving forward um, just like we've been doing for the past four years. Um, and I think that there is um, some pressure and responsibility, but it's also uh, something that is, um, you know, I, I take as a compliment, again, that I'm trusted with um, – situation with a position to help grow and build something like this. Do, do you look to the day that uh, the women are headlining Ring of Honor events? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I don't see any reason why we would, you know, stop anywhere. And um, I think right now it's, it's if we can just continue to integrate more into the existing product and, um, not only that, but just continue, continue to build, you know, the roster. And it, and it is it's so many different pieces that you have to kind of move one piece to move the other. So, you know, we, we need to build the roster and continue to do that and then, you know, get minutes, but you kind of need to do a little bit of both at the same time. And then, uh, you know, as you build the roster and uh, provide more of a platform for more exposure, then, you know, we can kind of um, move into more, featured roles as we've been doing for the past few years. So, you know, I think we'll just keep moving forward, keep pushing forward. And I'm hoping to see a lot of uh, women in particular who have that philosophy and are ready to, uh, you know, invest in themselves and invest in a division in a way, um, you know, that they can be part of just continuing to, to move this forward. Yeah. Let me ask you about Ring of Honor uh, as a whole. Uh, you know, there's been a thought that in the emergence of AEW and their competition with WWE and NXT kind of coming on strong as uh, a destination for uh, athletic, you know, kind of fast-paced pro wrestling, that Ring of Honor has kind of been left out and, and uh, that they're sort of losing that niche that they had to themselves for so long. Uh, so what's your take on kind of where Ring of Honor is right now and how they fit into the, the bigger landscape? I think that right now, you know, of course there are certain things that are new and there's always going to be some novelty with that. Um, and, and they're all putting on, you know, great events and they, there's so much great talent out there right now. Um, and there are now all of these places that provide more opportunities uh, for, for all of those people to get to perform and, uh, you know, all these different platforms now that can bring that to the audience. So I don't think that anybody, you know, has to choose one company or the other or leave one company for another or, you know, one talent for another. You can have, um, you know, a lot of favorites. And as long as people are just watching what they enjoy, um, you know, I, I think that every company and every person, every talent, everybody involved can use all of this to just really 
push themselves and challenge themselves and uh, it's just all of us can can be better and and I think we can use this as um, you know just a a way to do that an opportunity and um, motivation to do that so uh, to me I think that ring of honor um, you know even if it doesn't have a niche and maybe there are other alternatives that um, are offering you know another alternative that's that's what they all are we there are a lot of alternatives and uh, we're one of those but it's just i think that not being as new maybe is part of where it's like okay well what's this right. new thing so i don't really see it as like getting left behind and i know that the entire roster um and then you know everybody in in production and management um is is working hard together and coming up with ways that that we can continue to bring new different content to um, our, our existing fans and, you know, maybe hopefully bring new fans, um, you know, to what we're doing. And, and as we do things like with women of honor, uh, that's, that's something that ring of honor hadn't offered in this way in the past. So that's a place where um, I think that we can appeal to uh, a new portion of, of the audience. Yeah. Yeah. Where are you at with uh, women wrestling men? And, and uh, I bring that up uh, because obviously Impact uh, a couple weeks ago headlined a pay-per-view with a man versus a woman, um, kind of a novel approach. So here is one company that is kind of uh, moving in that direction. Last night on WWE's pay-per-view, they had uh, Baron Corbin uh, take out uh, Becky Lynch with his finisher, and it was kind of this shocking thing, and I think in WWE, that's still very much not okay, right, having uh, men and women work together. So, uh, what's your position on it? I mean, do you think it's kind of the, the next evolution of women's pro wrestling is to tear down that barrier and, and maybe have men work with the women? Um, I First of all, that's like such, I'll, I'll try to be as brief as I can because that's such a, a topic of its own. But for one thing, when I started wrestling, there were fewer women. So in order to even train and wrestle, I was wrestling men mm -hmm. much more than I was wrestling women uh, because it was either that or I was not wrestling. Um, so to me, just looking at it as an athlete and a performer, um, I don't see any reason why men and women shouldn't be able to work together. Um, and there's a lot of examples of two men working together where, um, you know, size or strength or agility or whatever the different factors are, uh, were drastically different. So, um, and then there are examples of men and women who are pretty evenly matched. So that argument, um, and either of those arguments, I, people are entitled to their opinion, but that argument as a, a reason to me doesn't really um, make too much sense. I think that people are definitely allowed to have uh, an emotional reaction to it. And in fact, that's, I think the desire, that's why uh, WWE would do something like that. I, I believe, you know, because they wanted it to be shocking. They knew people would be shocked. Um, so I think that there's, you know, that all these different feelings and opinions about it are, you know, people, <laughs> the good part, I mean, it's, it's going to be there and it's okay. And, and that's part of, I think, what um, different companies and different performers then can use. Um, you know, even if you look back to 
uh, like Kali and Colin Delaney, mm-hmm. um, y- you know, how, how can you, you say like, oh, that's, a, that's an okay story um, with him as such a, a drastic underdog at the time. But, you know, that for a woman not, not to be able to be in that position to me is kind of silly. Um, but he was portrayed as a very um, drastic underdog, and that was part of what the emotion of the story was, that, you know, um, that he was getting his, his butt whooped and kept standing up. So, um, you know, I, I, I know that there, it's, it's very nuanced, and, and a lot of people have a lot of different, different thoughts on it, but uh, to me, I just, I would, I would like us to be um, viewed a little bit more as individuals and our athletics and what we can bring to the table. But I also know it's important to look at the other factors because that is um, how you tell a story and how you elicit emotion is, um, you know, all of those feelings that people have about gender and gender bias. And, um, you know, when, when, when you've got these stories about um, body image and physique or um, aesthetics, I mean, just all of these different things are, um, they're going to elicit emotion and, and really we need them to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I saw the thing you posted on social media about your experience with, uh, an independent promoter and <laughs> it kind of relates to this. Uh, so, uh, not necessarily asking for specifics there, but it is, uh, is it sort of your experience that as wrestling has evolved and I think you touched on I can't remember a time in recent history when wrestlers and independent wrestlers in particular had so much independence, had so much of kind of um, the leverage to stand up for themselves that they need to take advantage of that more and and maybe not put up with what they did for many, many years. And and I would think particularly women. Absolutely. And something that uh, I've seen people start to talk about, but I I still think people don't realize is that uh, in a lot of ways, I think that many women have conditioned ourselves to where we will tolerate a lot because it, it just got to the point where it was easier to do that. Um, so there are a lot of things that, uh, like in that situation, uh, that promoter even defended himself. Saying, well, I asked the girls that, you know, if, if they were fine and they said they were fine. Well, yes, they are going to say they're fine because, then they can just move on and it doesn't necessarily mean they're fine. Uh, mm-hmm. Just a lot of things that we're so used to or um, in that situation, maybe it was, well, I dealt with worse, so whatever. But, um, and that was why I decided to post that because it, for, um, for a few days, I didn't say anything publicly about it. And then I thought, you know, the part of the reason that I walked away was to try to set the example and show the women that they don't have to deal with this um, and and they don't have to tolerate that kind of behavior. So if I don't tell them that that's what was going and that that was what was going on and that's why I walked away, then, um, you know, I felt like it was a sort of a missed opportunity to uh, try to empower others to, you know, quit putting up with stuff that they didn't want to put up with. And I think that whether it's that kind of thing or other uh, negative behavior, th- if, if we start to hold each other and hold the companies we work for and people we work with, we start holding all of those to higher standards and hold ourselves to higher standards, then I feel that the ones that um, are not doing good business will eventually you know, kind of fizzle out in a way 
But at the very least, um, I knew that if I was walking away from a situation like that, I needed to at least arm other women with the knowledge if they did decide to, to try to, you know, go work there and put up with whatever it was. I wanted them to at least know what they were walking into. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that goes for, for a lot of things and, and not just that male female dynamic, but, and I've heard this from other, a lot of other wrestlers that that Bush league indie promoter uh, stuff just doesn't fly anymore because uh, wrestlers do have so many other options that you right. don't have to put up for it. So, right. Um, and it, we communicate better too with each other. We have, I think more means of communication to communicate within the right. talent. So sure. when, you know, when there's a, a promoter or even a talent or anybody who is behaving badly, eventually, you know, we're, we're all going to find out about it. We're going to, you know, give each other a heads up on that kind of stuff. So um, that wasn't necessarily something that existed before. And I also think that having fewer options, uh, you know, maybe kept people from trying to rock the boat. Yeah. Uh, and then with social media, um, you know, for, for better or for worse, fans are much more informed. Yeah. Um, so, you know, then they can also think about, well, we have options as fans and we can go support our favorite wrestlers at this other place um, who treats them better. And, you know, they can they can vote with their dollars, too. Yeah. 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 It's like, you know, the Yelp of wrestling. Right. I mean, the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and one of the other things, too, is um, that, that I've had to deal with and I know other people have is where where someone else will try to use your name um so in this situation one of the the biggest issues for me was um, you know i do want women to have a, a safe and supportive environment to work and learn and uh that that promoter was using my name to actually try to convince people to work there and that was something where you know i said you know if if there are things going on that i'm not comfortable with and i can't control then I can't have somebody attaching my name to it and, sure. uh, you know, using my name to vouch with other people. Um, and that was why, you know, I, and knowing especially that that was going on, I thought, you know, I better <laughs> let, let the girls know what's, what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, sure. It's an honorable thing to do. Pun intended. Um, <laughs> anyhow, thanks so much. I don't want to take too much of your time. Uh, I appreciate you uh, jumping on the line here. Uh, yep. Awesome. Thank you so much. Bye.